Baptists in, in Costa Mesa area. And um, I heard this story on the TED, uh, it was a TED talk. And it was a story of a woman named Dame Stephanie Shirley. And I thought, okay, this is a story I've got to start with because it's so incredible. She was an Austrian woman born in the 1930s, and her earliest memory was clutching her sister's hand and waving goodbye to her parents from Austria. She was a little Jewish girl, and she was put on the train. It was something, they saved 10,000 Jewish children. It's something called the Kindred Transport. Saved 10,000 Jewish children and sent them off to Britain. Well, after the war, she had grown up a bit and realized that she was saved. I mean, not just, she didn't know why she was getting on the train at first. She didn't understand what was all happening. She couldn't fathom that Adolf Hitler was about to murder 6, 6 million people. That couldn't possibly begin to enter her consciousness. And, and yet, she got on this train and she began to, to live in Great Britain as a British woman in her adopted country. And it was hard for women in Britain after the war. First of all, many women had lost their husbands, and there was laws that you couldn't open a bank account without your husband. And so it was hard for women to survive. And one of the things that she did is she saw that. Before she was married, she said, okay, I'm going to start a company. She started one of the world's first software companies operated by a woman. But she also found that she had a very hard time putting bread on the table. She had a very hard time um, supporting herself because nobody would return a call from someone named Stephanie in the business world. It was just ludicrous to them at that time. And so she began to write all of her contracts, Steve, and she got calls like flooding in. She became one of the biggest, she, did, she was a mathematician, and she began to, um, they did longhand division and math and things like that, and she began to make punch cards for the old computers back in the day. And these punch cards would, would do train schedules and bus schedules after the war. And she, everybody just thought she was a he and his name was Steve. But it was really this brilliant woman leading this company. And women who had lost their husbands during the war who could barely make it, she hired them to be part of her company. And people thought, oh, this is just a joke. This will never make it. She became the first billionaire woman when her uh, company went public. And she made 70 millionaires when her company went public. Now, that's not the reason why I share the story. But she also raised an autistic son and got, ended up getting married, raised an autistic son, and, and supports autism, things like that. And does, does amazing work in her community. And somebody asked her the question, why did you do all this? What drove you to do all this? And she said, well, just real nonchalantly, I just decided to make my life worth saving. And I went, whoa. She realized the gift that she was given. This gift of life that all of her you know, family members, extended family members had been killed in this great war. And she was given this gift of life. And she said, I just decided to make my life worth saving. And I thought, whoa. Look at us in the church so many times. We've said yes to Jesus and continue to sit on our rear ends, right? This woman was saved and she did something about it. She literally had her life saved. We certainly don't have the perspective of a survivor of Nazi Germany, but we can understand how that would feel, right? This woman felt so strongly that she had been saved, that she had to act. She had to do something. I was saved. Now let's make the best of it. I was saved. Now let's go do something. So today I want to take us back to our foundations because this thought is so permeates my mind this week. Lord, that you saved us. 
God, that you helped us, and now we do something about it. So I want to flip back to Matthew um, chapter 16. Um, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and flip there. If not, we um, don't have it on the screen. Actually, Josh, maybe you could help out with getting that on the screen because uh, there was a lot of setup this morning. Let's say, let's say that. And I think that we uh, forgot to, and by we, I mean I uh, forgot to put that up there. So Matthew 16, I said, don't worry, I got it. Don't ever believe me when I say that. Matthew 16. This goes back to the very foundations of the church. Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20. Jesus is taking his disciples on a walk. And, he, and here's where he ends up. It says, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, for, uh, son of Jonah, for this is not revealed to you by the flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and on the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosened in heaven. Then he ordered his, his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. I love this. Jesus takes his 12 disciples on a little road trip. And if you understand first century Palestine, Israel, you understand that what he did was not in the religious center of the world. The religious center at this time is Jerusalem. It's a lot further south. In fact, it's days walks away to get to Caesarea Philippi. In fact, you have to go past the Sea of Galilee, up into the mountains. And I've been there. It's, it's beautiful. This church gave me a trip to Israel. And it's one of the highlights of my life. It's amazing. And there's this beautiful spring right there in, in Caesarea Philippi where the water comes out of the ground and feeds the Jordan River a little ways down. And there was this temple there, the Temple of Pan. The, the god Pan was a Roman god that was half goat, half man. And if you grew up in this area in Glendora, there was something called the, um, the uh, what, what do we call it, the, the Glendora Day Camp up at Big Dalton. And as a kid, I went there, the Glendora Day Camp, and we used to walk through these tunnels. And there was this one tunnel, the, the, an old couch was back there, and all the leaders would scare us and say, that's where the Eddie Goat Man lives. He's half goat, half man. And at night, I'd be laying there freaked out because I thought that this goat man was going to come fly and take me in my, in my bed. But anyways, when I got older and started working there, that was grounds for dismissal to tell that story. So unfortunately, we didn't get to tell that story. Um, but but this, this is the Temple of Pan, half goat, half man. This is the most pagan place you could go. Next to this temple was a temple for worshiping Caesar, the, the Roman emperor. So this was a far away from the Jewish establishment, far away from the temple where the holies of holies were Jesus, when he wanted to go make the declaration of what his church was built on, ran from the religious elite. And he went right to the people who needed him. Wow. That's what this church needs to do, doesn't it? Not run from the religious elite, but run to the people that need Jesus. Run to the people that don't get it. Run to the people who might be lost. That's what we need to do as a church. This is huge that he doesn't launch this church right where the temple is, but in Caesarea Philippi. This is Jesus' M.O., to go where people need 
saving, to go to where when people submitted their lives to Christ, when people were healed by Jesus, then they would walk fresh lives and say, wow, I was saved, now let's make this life worth saving. That's what was Jesus' MO. That's what Jesus did. He went to these people constantly. So as Jesus was taking his disciples to this most pagan place, he got this divine revelation. There was this divine revelation from God on Peter's life. It was a word from God. We call these moments in, in the Greek, these are kairos moments. There's two different ways to tell time in the Greek. Chronos, which many of you might have on your watch, a, a, um, especially if you've been a pilot, a, a, a chronograph. It's a way of telling linear time from here to there. And then kairos. Those are the moments that God just shows up. Those are the moments that divine revelation happened. Those are the moments where you come home and you're like, I had the time of my life, and nobody ever says to you, well, how long exactly was that time of your life? You know, I mean, you don't do that, right? This is Kronos moment, or Kairos moments. And Jesus gave one of these to Peter because God spoke to him at this moment. He said, who do you say the Son of Man is? And Peter replied, or they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And then he says to Peter, but what about you? What about you? Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. This was a, a huge Kairos revelation for Peter where God showed up and he will never forget this moment. This is the declaration of which the church is built. When Jesus says, on this rock I'll build my church, he's talking about this divine revelation of Peter's, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And that's, as a church, what we need to remember here today. And another thing that he says, he says, on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of Hades, or hell is a good translation, will not overcome it. Now, the God, Pan, the reason why Jesus went there and made this declaration, there's this God named Pan who apparently inhabits this temple. Well, the God, Pan, would travel to the underworld and communicate with those in Hades or the dead. And he would come back up and tell the world what happened. If their sacrifice was acceptable, the water would turn different colors of either blood red or it would be clear whether or not Pan heard their sacrifice. And so when Jesus said, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. One of the things we have to do is just see the genius of Jesus here, what he is doing. All through the Old Testament, God is called the rock. Deuteronomy 32, 4, he is the rock, his works are perfect, and his ways are just. 1 Samuel 2, 2, there is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Psalm 18, 31, for who is God besides our Lord? And who is the rock except our God? And then Jesus already identified himself as the rock at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. You remember this? He says, therefore, anyone who hears my words and, and put Stem into practice is like the one who builds their house on the rock. Jesus is establishing himself as that rock from the Old Testament. And one of the very important things that you do in a covenant ceremony is that you change names. Imagine marriage, right? There's a name swap that happens. There's in a covenant ceremony, and so Jesus says to Peter, you 
are the rock. And you, this amazing Kairos moment happens where he begins to understand and realize what God is doing. In fact, the, there's this, even this really fun play in Greek on the word rock. And where Jesus is, um, Jesus essentially is the big rock and Peter is the little rock. It's amazing. And he says, your house, your church, my church will be built on this rock. Your declaration that Jesus is the Messiah, Peter's declaration that Jesus is the Messiah, that's the rock of which this church is built on. That's the only thing that will let us go forward. That Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Now, churches build their foundations on other things. They, they build them on pastoral personality. And let me tell you, if this church was built on me or any of the other previous pastors, then we'd have a reality show on our hands, not a church on our hands, right? If this church were built on renting our property, we'd have a property leasing agency on our hands, not a church on our hands. If this church we're, we're built on advocacy, then we'd have a political action committee on our hands, not a church on our hands. If this church was only built on education, then we'd eventually have a school on our hands and not a church. Our church has to be built on this firm foundation that Jesus is the Messiah and that we're not. And he could do whatever he pleases with this place, with us that we have to be fully submitted to him in his kingdom. See, a couple of moments later, Jesus begins to, now that they get it, now that they understand who he is, he begins to preach that he has to go and, and he, he has to complete his work and he has to die on the cross. And this same guy, Peter, who, who got this amazing Kairos moment invitation that, that said, yes, you're the Messiah. He said, no, 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 you can't go die. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Why? Peter began preaching a different gospel. Peter began proclaiming something else. No, 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 Jesus, this isn't the way you're supposed to act. Here's how I want you to act. And so many times, you know, churches could be guilty of this over the years. So, no, Jesus, this is how we want you to move and not the way, we, you know, that you want what we want. Not, not your will, my will be done. Come on, God. You know, we, we begin to do this over time. And that's exactly what Peter did. He had this wonderful invitation, but then this wonderful challenge because right after that, Jesus said, if you want to follow me, you have to daily take up your cross and you need to walk with me. The revolution of that statement. Nobody was taking up crosses. In fact, the, the, the year that Jesus was born, right around that time, there was a, a, a revolt which resulted in about 20,000 people being crucified near Jesus' home. And so as a little boy, Jesus would have seen people crucified. This is a common Roman tactic to kill people. And Jesus said, if you want to follow me, you've got to take that up and you've got to follow me. That's it. You've got to be ready to lose it all in order to follow me. And then a little bit before this, Jesus said to Peter, you could have the keys to the kingdom. Keys were a valuable thing because, um, as, as you can imagine, not too many people had locks back then. It was kind of an uncommon deal. And he essentially said, built on this declaration, taking up your cross and following me, you could have the keys to the kingdom. In other words, all the power that's available to me is available to you. All that is mine can now be yours. That's odd. You always have sound issues on, like, the big day of church, right? <laughs> Mm -hmm. 
So why do we have a 60th anniversary? One, we want to remind people that our lives are built on this foundation, that Jesus is Lord. He's the Son of the living God. And that he can transform our very lives. But I got to ask some questions. And we even begin, like, hey, pastor, shouldn't we have a 75th anniversary, not 50th, 50, 75th? And, and probably, I mean, that's, yeah, we, we'll do that too. But there's one thing that I wanted to share with you today that I think is really important. And that's this. What is the average lifespan of a church in America? Does anybody know that, the answer to that question? No one wants to shout out any answers? 50? Nope. Nope, not 25. 70 years is the average lifespan of a church in America. 70 years. So why do we have a 60th anniversary? To push ourselves to the next 60 years. To say that we're not going to be one of these churches that sidelines the gospel and, and builds it on something else entirely. That our gospel is built on Jesus Christ. And that what we do moving forward is a reminder that our lives are built on the rock And every now and then we need to have that reminder that our lives are simply built on the rock that is Jesus Christ. And our lives personally have to be built on that. Our families have to be built on that. Our churches, our communities have to be built on that. It's one of the reasons why we've updated our our vision statement to, to this new one. It says transforming lives, families, and communities to the truth, power, and love of Jesus Christ. Because we need transformation so like I said, the average lifespan of a church in America is 70 years. And, and so you don't have to be expert mathematicians to say, that's 10 years away for us. Now, are we going to be the kind of church that goes, well, it was a good run? Or are we going to be the kind of church that charges right past it? I think we're going to be the kind of church that takes a Learjet past that line. We're having the 60th anniversary to remind and reaffirm this 2,000-year-old declaration of the gospel. And again, we need to affirm this as individuals and as an entire community, that Jesus is the Lord and we will build our life on the rock. And we're going to do that in a very specific way. But you have some some, uh, fill-in-the-blanks here. And there's three things, I think, moving forward that we need to focus on. So before we get to this, I want to tell you about my favorite verse in the Bible, Romans um, 8, uh, 19. And that is this. And this is the verse that drives me. This is the verse that when I wake up in the morning, this is what I think of. This is the verse that, that just beats me over the head. It says this, For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. And what does that mean? It means the entire world wants us to live like Jesus. It waits, the world waits in eager expectation for us to look like Jesus, for us to forgive like Jesus, for us to talk like Jesus, for us to move like Jesus. The world wants to see that. They want to see authentic lives, authentically transformed. They want to see people who said, yeah, I, I, used to, I was mixed up in, in, in this, but Jesus set me free. They, the world needs to see this. And so there's three things that we need to focus on, in my opinion here. I've prayed and said a lot about this. One, we need to shift from conversion to transformation. Conversion to transformation. Now, is conversion important? Absolutely. Absolutely conversion is important. We need people to say yes to Jesus. We, but 
What we desperately need to see more is those converted people authentically living out the gospel because people won't follow Jesus without seeing it in your life. They want to see Jesus show up in your life. They need to see transformation. It's not just, oh yeah, I made this decision when I was younger, or oh yeah, I've you know, sat in church my whole life. No, they need to see this gospel message that Jesus is the Messiah break out of who you are. They need to see authentic lives. So we need to start moving from conversion to transformation. We need to celebrate conversions. But we need to work towards the holistic transformation of our lives, of our families, and our communities. Number two, we need to shift from filling the seats to filling the city. Amen? Filling the seats. Now, is it important to fill seats here? Sure, absolutely. We want to train and equip people about Jesus. We want people's lives to permeate Jesus, and that's what we do Sunday morning, is we train you to follow Jesus. That's the best way to, we we train, we celebrate, we worship. That's all really important, but we need to fill the city. We need to fill city council seats. We need to fill school board positions. We need to be in the PTAs. We need to be out in, in, in the business associations. We need to be out all over the city, because that's where Jesus was. That's where Paul went. Jesus didn't run back to to the Holy of Holies and say, okay, guys, let's get going. No, he went to Caesarea Philippi, the worst of the worst. We need to fill the city, not the seats. Three, we need to shift from loving one another to loving our enemies. Now, of course, we need to love one another because the Bible says, and and this is absolutely right, that, that when you love one another, this is a testimony to Jesus and people will know who Jesus is because we love one another. But I feel like we've really got that down really good. And we need to start loving our enemies because as we move forward and love people that are our enemies to the point to where we don't have enemies with them anymore, that we're not no longer enemies with them, then that shares the gospel. This amazing love that Jesus has for us, that shows off who Jesus is. We need to be a transformed people who reach this city, who love our enemies. What I'm saying is that loving one another should be a given. That should be an absolute given. But as we move forward, we need to work on loving our enemies. So today we celebrate 60. It's a major accomplishment and a major reason to give Jesus all the glory. It's a reason for us to remember that we are loved by God who sent us his son, who decided that we are worthy of saving. Now it's time to make that salvation worth something, right? It's time to make that worth something. It's time to push forward. It's time to to work hard, just like Daphne, Stephanie, Shirley, who went by Steve in order to get business contracts. I've been saved. Now it's time to walk into that. As a declaration of that, we've got this cross over here. We've got these tiles. As a reminder that we're built on Christ, one of the things that we wanted to do today is make a community art project with everybody here that we're going to hang in the back of our sanctuary to remind us that we're built on Christ. We're built on his cross. We have to daily take that up, and we're built on the rock. And so what I'm going to ask everybody to do, just simply as a declaration to say, my life is built on Christ. And we're going to have Dennis Sanderson up here to help out. We've got these Sharpies. I just want to ask you to take a Sharpie and to simply write your name on, this, on the back of this tile. 
almost as a signature on the line of, okay, Jesus, I'm all in. And we're going to play three songs. We're going to give you time for this. And you know what? There's right out, If you don't have time, because it'll get kind of crowded up here, if you don't have time to do this right now, we're going to also going to take this right outside um, afterwards for our picnic time. And we're just going to ask you, let this moment mean something. That this is a moment where you say, Jesus, I'm all yours. Maybe you declared it once in the past but it's declaring again now and say, God, I'm good for the next 60 years, whatever that leads. I'm good for the next 60 years. We're going to breeze right past 70. And we're good for the next 60. Let's pray. Father, this morning, what a reminder that you have saved us. Lord, what a reminder that you are king. God, the very fact that you went to Caesarea Philippi, and not to Jerusalem, to start your church. God, send us where it's tough to go. God, send us into the city. Send us in your love and in your great grace. But Lord, there's folks here today who need to renew that covenant with you, who simply need to say, my life is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness that they need to write their name on that cross and, and stick it up there as a reminder for eternity that they are yours. So Father, I pray that you use this time to renew some covenants here that you've made with people, to renew some commitments. Lord, use this time of worship to stir among your people. God, we want to hear from you. We need that Kairos moment, that moment where we say, wow, you showed up. And you are the, the, the Lamb of God. Lord, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. So, Father, do your work here today. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You can stay.